Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by two of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal and Damon Linker of the Week. Linda Chavez is out this week, and we're delighted that Bill Crystal has joined us to represent the center-right. And our special guest is Pete Weiner, contributor to the New York Times and the Atlantic. So welcome, one and all. Before we dig into today's topics, I want to recognize our winner. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Matt Iglesias' Substack, and Bill Galston issued a challenge to our listeners to explain the origin of the term slow boring, which is the name of Iglesias' Substack. And sure enough, no sooner did this podcast drop than we got a bunch of people. But the winner, the first one out of the gate was Ann Womble, who explained that the name comes from Max Weber's essay, Politics as a Vocation, where he writes that politics is a strong and slow boring of hard boards that takes both passion and perspective. So congratulations to Anne. I have to say, honorable mention also needs to go to Marshall Power Locke, who came in only seconds later with the correct answer. So there you go. Bill Galston, we have very uh, smart listeners. I never doubted it. (laughs) They have to be. (laughs) By the way, Anne Womble uh, is a writer, and you can follow her on Lancaster Online. All right. So as much as we hate having to talk about Donald Trump, there was some news that came out of his rally, and there are also aspects of it that I think we really need to chew over a little bit. So first, let's just hear a little bit of what he told his admirers. If I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. Right. So promising pardons for lawbreakers, people who smashed the faces of cops, put people in fear of their lives, caused a number of deaths uh, via suicide among the cops and by heart attack and other things among the actual protesters and attempted to subvert an election. But yeah, he's planning on pardoning them. He also threatened mob violence in the event that any of the prosecutors who are currently looking at evidence of wrongdoing bring charges against him. And then he did this. If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. Okay, so I want to start with you, Bill Crystal. The MAGA people drape the flag over everything, but that's the message of from Donald Trump is that the country and the elections are corrupt. The country's corrupt. Yeah, well, if you're an authoritarian who wants to, pretty fundamentally, you have to change our former government or make a big exception for yourself, at least, and your followers to the normal uh, requirements that you obey election results and uh, obey the law and 
and so forth, you need to say the whole thing is corrupt. And if we saw this abroad, we'd say, yeah, that's kind of what happens in a very unstable young democracy where you don't have well-established rules, where you yield power to the party that wins and, and, and so forth. I'm very struck by one sentence in the little clip you played too. He attacks racist prosecutors. Now, there's nothing racial about any of the possible prosecutions. Why did he say racist? It's not about race, not about a hate crime that's controversial and was it a fraud or not, right? It's not racist. He said racist because the prosecutors are black. Yep. So the degree to which Trump has normalized pretty close to the to visible at this point, just flat out racism is is a little astonishing and terrible, of course. Right. I mean, one of the things, Pete Weiner, that I have found over the years is I will talk to Republicans who are who are still Republican and they will go along with me pretty far in saying that Trump is terrible and irresponsible and unfit. But when I say he has appealed to racism openly, that's where they dig in their heels. They say, oh, no, that I don't think is true. That's the left's narrative. He has black supporters and, and so on. Were you also struck by that line where he accused the prosecutors of being racist? Yeah, I was, and and uh, struck by it in a sense because it was so predictable, uh, so consistent with with who he is. The other thing that struck me rather forcibly in in that, that speech that he gave is essentially the inciting unrest of these prosecutors took action against him. I mean, this is more than playing footsie with political violence. It's it's really an embrace or green light. We saw that on January sixth, but it's continuing. Just a couple of other points too, which is. However bad Trump 1.0 was, Trump 2.0 is going to be much worse. It's going to make the first term look like a walk in the park. And just one other point, which is, I think that this speech and really how he's acted since the election is an indication of his deteriorating mental state. I, I said in 2015, the central thing that you had to understand about Donald Trump is his disordered personality and his constant perseveration on the election, exclusive of anything else shows just how damaged uh, a person he is. This is a kind of narcissistic personality disorder, which is um, getting worse and worse. And that matters because he is still the front runner for the nomination. He's still the leader of the Republican Party, and he's defining it. Uh, Bill Galston, a lot of people who are, are writing pieces about how Trump's grip on the Republican Party is weakening, they'll point out that the, the candidates that Trump has endorsed are having real trouble raising money. The number of people who tell pollsters that the reason they're Republicans is because they are Trump first versus Republicans first is slightly changing in the direction of being more Republicans first. Now he's sounding like a raving old guy, only talking about 2020. People want to pivot to the future. What do you make of that argument? Well, the pieces of evidence that you cited that people often cite in favor of that argument are all true. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how close to dispositive are they or will they become? To what extent are they leading indicators of a continuing weakening in Trump's position? Nobody knows the answers to those questions. And we won't have a sense of how much of this is real until the Republican primary campaign begins and unless some really credible people stand up to oppose Trump. I think the jury's out on both of those. There's 
pretty good reason to believe, although Bill Crystal is probably a lot closer to this than I am, uh, that the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, is positioning himself as the anti-Trump back to the Republican Party as we knew it candidate if he has the guts and the political supplies to mount an effective challenge. But I'd say even more significant is the question of whether uh, the governor of Florida decides to oppose Trump, because that will then be a real test of the party's willingness to distinguish between populism, whose contents I deplore, but which remains within the democratic pale, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the quintessence of Trumpism, which is what we've just heard in the first few minutes of this podcast. Stay tuned. So, Damon, do you think that either DeSantis or Hogan could possibly take the Republican nomination away from Trump if Trump chose to run? Well, my view, I don't think Larry Hogan has even the slightest shred of a chance. I like the guy. If I lived in Maryland, I'd be very tempted to vote for him and might, depending on who is running on the other side. Uh, But in the Republican Party as it exists now, I don't think there is any significant constituency for someone like that. I'd be surprised if he won a single delegate. DeSantis, on the other hand, I do think could have considerable appeal, but I really, really do not think that he will run if Trump is truly running. Now, as you said, we don't know if Trump's going to run. This whole thing could just be a ruse to make money and keep himself kind of in the news cycle. So it's very much in his personal interest to keep pretending and talking like he's running. Uh, He also apparently is still going to be launching this new social media company. So, of course, that uh, gives that venture far more um, rocket fuel if it's tied to a potential presidential run. So if he does declare he is running and starts doing these regular rallies in the guise of a campaign rally, I don't think DeSantis or any other truly, in current terms, mainstream Republican is going to take him on. I just don't see it happening. I think this obsession with 2020 that he won't let go of, I think is actually an extremely effective insulation to any serious challenge from within the party, simply because it's going to set up a situation where in the first debate, the first question inevitably is going to be to DeSantis, Pence, Cotton, whoever it is, Haley, whoever that person would be, do you agree with former President Donald Trump that the 2020 election was stolen from him and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president? And what are they going to say? If they say, no, I don't believe it, Joe Biden's the legitimate president and Donald Trump is full of it, then Trump comes out and eviscerates them in the way that only Trump can do and that he has proven his facility at doing. If, on the other hand, they come up with some kind of like a wishy-washy, let's change the subject, yeah, maybe there was fraud, but we're not sure, let's talk about something else, Trump will again come out and then present the alternative as you either want the tough guy, me, to fight for you and to avenge the stab in the back that we suffered, or go for that weak, wimpy, 
version of the story that you just heard there. And frankly, hearing Trump speak at that rally very much was a reminder to me that this guy, first of all, is like demonic. (laughs) I mean, and I, I heard him and I thought, you know, this guy can do this. Nobody else can do it. Lots of the candidates that he picks and anoints and then don't do so great. And then other more moderate and sensible people in the party say, look, there's hope. He's not that influential. His candidates aren't doing that well. That's because they're not him. Only he can do that. Only he will stand up and say, as Sarah Longwell of The Bulwark pointed out, I think very well in a tweet earlier this week, she said, you know what? The Republican Party spent months trying to put January 6th behind us, say it was no big deal. These were just patriots. They weren't trying to overturn the election. It wasn't a coup. And Trump comes right out and just says, hell yeah, it was a coup and I'm going to do it again. Nobody does that. And that is exactly what his base loves to hear. So there's my very long-winded. No, it was all good. All good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I want to close out this section with uh, just one more thing. And I know we have so much to get to, but Pete, you know, one of the really frustrating things, just from a moral point of view, is, you know, you see all these people facing jail time and serious career consequences and other things for their role in the Trump debacle, except Trump. And while he was president, he's immune from private suits and he's immune from criminal prosecution. And then after he's president, he's similarly taken to be immune because the political consequences are so unthinkable about politicizing policy differences and one administration going after the previous one and so forth. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I agree with you. With Trump, there is a sense that uh, what's happening offends our sense of justice because he's done so many immoral and unethical things and he seems to have gotten away with it. I do think there's the caveat, which is that there are prosecutors who are looking into various crimes that he may have committed, and that's why he was talking about the uh, the civil unrest. My own sense of this is if, if the prosecutors determine that he did um, commit crimes, they should move forward and prosecute him, because I think he is sui generis as a figure. I mean, even, even Nixon was more sympathetic than Trump in this regard. I understand the argument that prosecuting a former president would divide the country. But I think that the scales of justice outweigh that concern. And in any event, the country is deeply divided as it is. In this case, I do think that a sense of justice is warranted if the prosecutors think there's a case to be put forward. Okay. Thank you. And now we will turn to cancel culture. All right. So this week featured a number of high profile or some semi-high profile people saying and doing things that they were either criticized for or regret, or so we had the big Joe Rogan, Neil Young, Spotify controversy. We also had Whoopi Goldberg suspended for two weeks from The View for comments that she made about the Holocaust. And we had Ilya Shapiro facing an investigation for tweets that he made about the next Supreme Court justice. So let's take them in 
turn. Bill Galston, I'm going to start with you. This is a part of American life now that it's not enough to apologize. You you have to go through the gauntlet or or have your career ruined if you make a mistake. So what's your sense, though, about the relative harms that each of these represents? I mean, Whoopi Goldberg. Well, a week ago, or whenever she said what she said, I was tempted to minimize it as simple ignorance, a kind of tunnel vision that enabled her to see only a small portion of a much larger truth. As I've dug deeper, I've been astonished at what I found. And to my astonishment, uh, (laughs) the epicenter of this dangerous confusion turns out to be an organization known as the Anti-Defamation League, which has been at the center of the fight against anti-Semitism ever since its creation. And let's just review the events. For a very long time, the ADL defined racism, and I quote, as the belief that a particular race is superior or inferior to another. But the ADL now defines the term, or did until just a few days ago, this way. Racism is the marginalization or oppression of people of color based Mm -hmm. on a socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. In other words, Whoopi Goldberg was simply repeating what the ADL in its new woke mode said up until a few days ago. Enter the executive director of the ADL, and here's what Jonathan Greenblatt has to say. A few years ago, ADL, here's his verb, updated our definition to reflect that racism in the United States manifests in broader and systemic ways and to explicitly acknowledge the targeting of people of color, among many others, by the white supremacist extremism we have tracked for decades. Then Mr. Greenblatt pauses for breath. I can see it in the two spaces. And then goes on to say, while this is true, the new frame narrowed the meaning in other ways. And by being so narrow, the resulting definition was incomplete, rendering it ineffective and therefore unacceptable. (laughs) It alienated many people who did not see their own experience encompassed in this definition, including many in the Jewish community. In all honesty, as I reread it this past week, it struck me that it didn't even speak to my own family's experience with the racism they experienced as Jews from the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes on to talk about you know, the ADL's provisional new definition of racism and all of the internal processes that they were revising in order to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. I'm not going to comment on the words I just read because they so clearly speak for themselves and speak to the deformation of reason and common sense in contemporary American culture. I still cannot get over my astonishment that the ADL of all organizations created the foundation for all of this. One more quotation, if I may, that explains why I can't exonerate Whoopi Goldberg, as I was tempted to do just a few days ago. Goldberg made 
this jaw-dropping assertion, and here I quote, this is white people doing it to white people. So this is, y'all go fight among yourselves. That's Whoopi Goldberg's universalistic definition <laughs> of what's really going on here. So when the Germans annihilated the Jews, it was one group of white people taking it out on another group of white people, and therefore it can't be racism. Yeah. Well, she did go on then to say it's man's inhumanity to man, and, and that's the problem. And okay, but uh, but no, it was it was bad, and and she has apologized, uh, although uh, apparently now apologies are no longer taken into account. But Bill Crystal. I want to come to you on this because I think one of the things that these various controversies, especially the one with Whoopi Goldberg, reveal about the modern era is that the whole concept of what a race is and what racism is, is so truncated, so narrow. I mean, the world is full of examples from the not that distant past where Italians were considered a non-white race, where Poles were considered a non-white race. Even the whole idea that there are races instead of ethnic groups of human beings is kind of controversial. And yet, when it comes to things like this, it's thought that, that the only kind of racism that you can speak of, even when you're talking about the Nazis who made race their reigning ideology, the Aryan so-called race above all others and a whole hierarchy going all the way down to African-Americans at the very bottom, by the way, that seems to have been lost. Do you agree? Yeah, it is It is striking. Our friend Jay Nordlinger, he remembered, which I didn't, I'm embarrassed to say that my mother in her book she wrote late in life on uh, philo-Semitism in, in England had actually a little epilogue on the use of the term race because so many of the people mostly praising the Jews actually in England spoke of the Jewish race. That was just the term that was used, including by Jews often. Mm -hmm. And then it mm -hmm. becomes extremely problematic for various reasons, some of them having to do with pre-Nazi reasons, so to speak, where you know Jews are religion, not a race. That becomes a big internal debate in Judaism. How important is ethnicity, so to speak, or biology, or having a Jewish parent, a convert, you know, there's a million issues, yeah. right? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then of course the Nazis take it all to a different level. So I was so interested in listening to Bill Galston go through it carefully and intelligently. I just at some point have decided recently, I mean, I can't even, there's so many of these cancel culture controversies. I know my general position, which is the kind of old-fashioned liberal position, but I, to have a judgment on each of them, you, you have to get pretty fact-specific, right? Because there are things you can imagine a professor saying or teaching that he probably should be called to task on, maybe even disciplined for, maybe even conceivably fired for, most things not. There are things that an actor says that are offensive, but an actor's an actor, or a TV personality is a TV personality, different standard than someone teaching in a class, which in turn has different standards from you know other professions, and, and then so many different things are said, and they're taken out of context, and they're tweets that are misunderstood or badly formulated as opposed to reflecting something about the person. And then you have to go read everything else he's written to see if he really is that. Right, right. And right, I just decided, right. you know what? I don't, it's life's too short. I don't, I'm yeah. going to let other people do the research into this. I think in general, people should be less offended. Fewer people should be fired and disciplined. Certainly people shouldn't be canceled without a kind of due process, either literally due process in the case of you know people's jobs and so forth, but a kind of, uh, let's call it cultural or intellectual due process and a certain just kind of tolerance and tendency to 
forgive, as you suggested earlier, uh, if it's kind of an uncertain case. Yeah, I'm, I'm against cancel culture on all sides, and it's become such a partisan tool also that every each side just decides to emphasize its aspect of it. And there are bad aspects on both sides. And so school boards are doing foolish things for the right, and university administrations are doing foolish things from the left. Both are somewhat illiberal at times. And, you know, each side just picks up the one it wants to use as a cudgel. And uh, you'd hope we can get to a healthier place on this, but I can't say that one sees it happening in the in the very near future. Yeah. Damon, the bad faith is just so thick you can cut it with a knife because people do not give the benefit of the doubt to anybody. If you slip, ooh, it's an opportunity for the other side to pounce. And if you say, well, I was taken out of context, or let's talk about Ilya Shapiro. So, you know, he tweeted that the objectively best pick, in quotes, to succeed Stephen Breyer would be Sri Srinivasan, an Indian-born chief judge of the Court of Appeals, District of Columbia. And then he also added in that tweet that because Biden had already committed to choosing a black woman, that this ensured that the country would get a lesser black woman. That was bad, obviously. But from the context, what he meant or says he meant was that he was comparing all potential nominees, not just black women, to Srinivasan, who he regards as head and shoulders above any of the other progressive nominees without regard to race or sex and so forth. But let's talk about how things are in America now, Damon. I mean, this happens. He was just supposed to start at Georgetown. He was put on leave while there's an, an investigation. Some students at Georgetown Law are protesting. They are asking for a cry room, uh, a special room where they can go to burst into tears. So that's that's the left's hysterical reaction. On the right, meanwhile, there's barely any recognition that his words were badly chosen and that he was right to apologize. So your thoughts? Yeah, I just actually saw a tweet from uh, Darren Beatty, who, you know, is a far-right figure who served in the Trump administration for a short time before being forced out because he uh, attended kind of a white power rally. He just tweeted, the only time you should ever be canceled is if you apologize. So that sort of <laughs> captures the kind of Trumpian rights attitude, is never apologize. Um, right. there's, there's cancel culture in the kind of ambient United States culture. And then, then there's cancel culture on college campuses. And this whole thing sort of originally, I think, migrated from college campuses. And that they are a little bit different in the sense that on a college campus, you have a, a very limited population of people and usually some faction of which is pretty far to the left and, and are kind of true believers in what we call kind of woke ethics. And so what you'll end up with in a situation like this, where there's a conservative who gets in hot water for saying something sloppy or stupid or insulting, is that you actually do get large numbers of people at a protest demanding the person just outrightly be fired. So the kind of outer fringe of the kind of most egregious form of woke reaction. And then you also, you're dealing with a university campus where the standards for freedom of speech are supposed to be actually much higher than in the broader culture. In the broader culture, the standard is sort of vaguely set by what the business and its PR department think is best, right? Mm -hmm. So like, why is Whoopi Goldberg placed on a two-week suspension after she apologized for her stupid statement about race? 
uh, th- you you know what that was about. That wasn't a punishment. That was her and the corporate people sitting in a room and deciding what we need is a cooling off period for two weeks to get this out of the news, and then you can come on back. And so she said, okay, fine. So she'll go mm-hmm. on a vacation for two weeks. That's often the way it works. And you can actually lose your job, obviously, in the broader world. Uh, Kevin Williamson, originally of National Review, was hired in 2018 by The Atlantic to write for them. They must have known that he was a kind of Menkenite sort of slash and burn rhetorician who loved to light fires in his arguments that were very antagonistic to lots of people. And they hired him probably for that very reason. But then it came out that he had said certain inflammatory things about abortion, and suddenly the staffers at the Atlantic went nuts and demanded that he be fired, and then he got fired from the Atlantic. Yeah. Now he's sort of back at National Review in some kind of a, a job. Some but weird, that, uncomfortable arrangement. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah, he, he's an editor-at-large or something. So, yeah. um, so that was a case that actually is quite similar to the Ilya Shapiro case, except that in the Shapiro case, this is all taking place on a college campus where, again, the standards aren't supposed to be, well, what's good for the company, what's going to keep Jeffrey Goldberg from being fired as editor of The Atlantic because he's losing money for their finance people. It actually, it, it's supposed to be about creating the most open possible space for learning and knowledge finding and creation and debate, discussion, a kind of J.S. Millian paradise. But that, of course, is in jeopardy when you have large numbers of students who are demanding something else. And the university, like a corporation that gets bad press, is dealing with a lot of bad press right now because of it. So there's a lot of pressure. Can we just make this go away? So again, sort of like in the Goldberg situation, Shapiro is now on an administrative leave. We don't know how long that's going to last. And we don't know if in the end they'll try to dismiss him at the other side. So a big mess and a very typical mess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And no, I mean, the Atlantic example, though, was, was pretty pretty extreme. You know, as you say, they hired Williamson knowing that that he was a very incendiary writer. And then they suddenly said, oh my God, we're shocked to find out that he wrote these incendiary things. So Yeah, and they were incendiary. I mean, they he were, said, yes, he said things yes. like there should be the death penalty for abortion. And, yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's pretty out there. But, that is out there. But that's, I mean, I knew he said that yeah. <laughs> when, when they hired him, because I remember when he said it and that it was a bit of a controversy at the time. Yeah. All right. Well, so coming to you, Pete, I think David Frum had the best tweet um, about this whole cancel culture week. He tweeted, mutual prisoner release, Whoopi Goldberg on one end of the bridge, Ilya Shapiro on the other, (laughs) at a signal from the negotiators, both walk free simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, comment on any of what you've heard. Yeah, um, just on the uh, Ilya Shapiro situation at, at Georgetown, um, I agree w- with what Damon had said about the, you know there should be a higher standard for universities when it comes to free exchange of ideas, and there's in fact a, a much lower standard 
And that is serious because that, I think, is an assault on one of the core purposes of the academy. And that shouldn't be over overlooked. There's an enormous inversion that's happened. The other thing is, which you mentioned, Mona, about these students demanding a, a safe space in which to cry for the tweets um, that, uh, that went out. Um, that is an indication of something that I think we've, we've all seen, which is this extreme fragility, emotional fragility among students, which is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, if you talk to people who are professors, they identify it somewhere around 2014, 2015, when something changed, why it changed is a really interesting question. Some people like Jonathan Haidt think that social media and a generation that's been raised on social media has had a huge impact, which seems plausible to me. But the other thing is is just the utter failure of, of leadership in these academic institutions. A friend of mine wrote me and said that the universities are effectively subsidizing performative outrage by responding so compliantly to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, if, if if you subsidize something, you get more you get more of it. In the end, it's going to take institutional leadership to um, stop this uh, from from happening. People have to stand up uh, to it and and take a, a stand. I just will say as, as someone who's, who's um, I'm not employed by The Atlantic, but I write for them, I've actually found it to be a, a journal that's very broad-minded in its ability to speak. I'd have to go back and check with Kevin Williams and stuff, just from what Damon said. That is pretty incendiary stuff, so I don't want to relitigate that. But I actually think that there are institutions in the media world and other institutions that are trying to push back against the sort of oppressive cancel culture. And then my sense is the Atlantic is probably on the other side, but but others may disagree with me on that. Mm, fair enough. Can I just monitor? I just have yeah. one word on, on – I'll violate my rule about how I'm not getting into any of these things because, you know, I don't have the time to uh, investigate them in detail. The Ilya Shapiro tweet was offensive. It wasn't just ill-worded. I don't care what he says now. It made it seem as if there were no black female judges who could be at the standard of the chief judge uh, in the Second Circuit. Uh, I don't believe that was based on uh, he supposedly studies this stuff, but I personally have looked at the resumes, whatever it's worth, and skimmed a couple of the opinions of at least two of the candidates who are there uh, on the top of Biden's list. They're totally comparable. Yeah. To everyone, honestly, they're comparable to you know Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and and uh, Barrett. I mean, they're very high quality candidates. Maybe Biden shouldn't have restricted his search to black women. That's a whole other story, right? And it does feel to me that that's a little close to the bone in the sense that he's going to a law school. He's tweeting about lawyer judges. You know, it's not like it's an off the topic kind of thing, right? And you know, if I were honestly, if I were a female blacks student at Georgetown Law School, I would be pretty offended. Now, this doesn't mean he shouldn't get a job. It doesn't mean that he has to go into some Maoist type of self, you know, persecution or whatever, whatever I'm trying to say, whatever you call those things. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but Self-criticism. Self-criticism. But, you know, I, I feel like the conservatives have rallied to him as they know him, and I think he, they think he's a good guy, and he's f- yeah. for free speech and all these other things. But there's something a little disturbing, especially on race, for God's sake, it's such a sensitive issue in the first place, to sort of casually toss something like that out is is a little worse than your typical kind of, uh, oh, someone's gotten, you know, said something a little far out there or something like that. Yep. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I totally agree that this was very, very bad and that he definitely should have known better and uh, showed extremely poor judgment. But I don't think it's a death penalty crime. I think he should be shamed and he should have to, you know, he should have to account for himself and maybe use this as a moment to confront others and and be aware that what he did was wrong. But I, I just think that it's not good if 
the the first thing you do that's offensive gets you fired. I just I think there should be a little bit more leeway. And uh, anyway, okay, let us move on now to yet another topic. So we had an interesting column this week from from Ross Douthat that uh, our own Damon Linker commented on, which is uh, addressing the topic of who is really uh, for democracy or who's abandoning democracy in America. Now, it seems like a big topic and we don't have a huge amount of time, but I'd like to just touch on the arguments that Ross Douthat made. He was trying to make the case that an assumption that you see in a lot of progressive writing and even, you know, sort of liberal writing is that there's only one party now that is committed to the democratic process, and that's the Democrats, that the Republicans have become an authoritarian cult and are no longer committed to democracy. And Douthat pushed back on that. So Damon, tell us why you thought this was provocative and worth discussing. Yeah, I thought it was a provocative and fruitfully provocative column. He's essentially trying, in my reading of it, uh, to complicate this narrative, the story that you do hear a lot. He opens the column with a quote from Ben Rhodes, the former uh, Obama White House speechwriter, saying, there is no sense in avoiding or diluting the magnitude of this turn in our story. One major political party no longer accepts democracy. And you hear this kind of thing a lot. And his point, again, as I take it, is to say, look, if you look at the history plus the current behavior of the two parties, you see that actually the truth is more complicated than that. The Republican Party does have, conservatives have long had lots of uh, squeamishness uh, and apprehensions about mass democracy in all kinds of ways. You also have Republicans who, in the wake of Nixon's and Reagan's landslide victories, a real attachment to majoritarianism and a kind of intuitive feeling that somehow they represent the true, perhaps silent American majority. And he goes on to point out in a section of the column that I thought was very interesting, but perhaps could have been a little bit clarified, he's making the point about January 6th, and it's an incendiary point potentially, that it's important to recognize that Trump was not saying, I lost the vote, but I should be kept as president anyway because screw democracy. He was saying... I actually won the election and therefore should still be president, which is a concession to the legitimacy of democracy. Now, it was diluted. Douthat makes very clear that this is a lie, that it is not an accurate representation of the world, but it is a lie in the service of a kind of democratic legitimacy, which I think is a valid point because it shows that what Trump is doing is more messing with epistemology than he is with an attachment to uh, majoritarianism. He, he's doing something different, and that doesn't excuse it in any way, and Douthat doesn't try to excuse it. He also then goes on to, in the sections of the piece that really antagonized a lot of uh, progressives to claim that 
the center left in the United States has a history of having its own skepticism about majoritarianism. And he cites very quickly a number of examples of this. And I, I frankly, you know, I, I've, I've read a lot of the responses to this and they make some good points. I'm sure Bill Galston, for instance, might have some very sharp things to say about this. But I would also say it is obviously the case from the original progressive movement through Brown v. Board, through Roe v. Wade, through various defenses of regulations and bureaucracies and so forth, that liberal progressivism in America is quite suspicious of democratic majorities in all kinds of ways and supports checking them. And in that respect, Douthat's point is valid. And again, I would say I ended up with this column not agreeing with all of it, but it made me think. And it's pretty rare that I'm made to think deeply from an opinion column. And so for that, I think it deserved applause. Okay, we'll come to the um, the Democrats' anti-majoritarianism in a second. But Pete Weiner, I this argument that because the Trump people were were being asked to take up arms in the defense of a stolen election, that he was still sort of ratifying the idea of democracy and the legitimacy that democracy conveys. I wonder about that because, you know, dictators around the world win elections by 99%. They all feel the need to you know, cloak their regimes in this fake legitimacy of a, a supposedly huge election victory, but nobody is fooled by that. Everybody sees through it, right? So how do you apply that to this situation? Yeah. In fact, a lot of the most authoritarian and totalitarian regimes in history have used democratic in their um, names of their their country. Look, I, I think Ross's column, I think it was provocative. I don't think it was particularly fruitfully uh, provocative, as, as Damon said. I think he was comparing apples and hand grenades um, in this uh, in this example. Uh, you, you had, on the one hand, um, a movement, a MAGA movement, and a president who did try and overturn an election, whatever the, the, the veneer of the, of the rationalization. This wasn't a direct assault on democracy and a violent assault on democracy. And to try and compare that uh, in a sort of morally equivalent way um, to uh, the, the, the liberal administrative state. It just doesn't make sense to me. He, he talks about, Ross does, he quotes Nate Cohen, who refers to undemocratic liberalism and said, who should lead the pandemic decision-making? Maybe Fauci and the public health officials who makes important foreign policy decisions and so forth. Uh, and he's, he seems to be framing this as if this is not the will of the voters, but, but in, in his uh, language, uh, unelected mandarins. This is what representative government is. This is not a direct democracy. We don't take a referendum to figure out whether we should um, wear masks or, or, or vaccines or any of a number of other things. We elect people to be representatives and they make the decisions and there is an administrative state. And if you don't like it, you elect new people. Now, how those people in the administrative state respond is a perfectly legitimate topic for discussion. And I've, throughout my life, I've thought that the progressive and liberals have in many cases done poorly um, at that. But that to me is an entirely different question than what uh, what MAGA world did um, in, in the context of the, the 2020 election. Bill Galston, I'm going to assume you agree with Pete. And uh, so, so I'd like to ask you though, I mean, I, I was a little surprised that the examples that Douthat offered 
things like, you know, listening to Fauci and so forth were, were really sort of weak, whereas he might have cited the fact that for decades, progressives, liberals slash progressives who thought that they couldn't get their policy preferences enacted by popular majorities turned to the courts very successfully, actually, and tried to create new rights as a way to achieve policy objectives they couldn't achieve at the ballot box, which again, is not remotely equivalent to trying to overturn an election and citing violent mobs and twisting uh, our, our constitution into a pretzel. But uh, but anyway, I'd just be curious to hear your views. Well, in addition to agreeing with every word that Pete just uttered, you know, as you know from my <laughs> email correspondence with you, Anna, <laughs> you know, I made very much the same points, but Pete did it much better than I did. And thank you for that. There's a fundamental confusion in Douthat's column to the effect that the gold standard is direct popular majorities, you know, unfettered by institutions or much of anything else. And this is a confusion that the abuse of the word democracy invites. What we're talking about here is a constitutional republic, which from the very beginning had all sorts of counter-majoritarian institutions built into it. Some people don't like that. There are people on the left that don't like that, and there are people on the right that don't like that. But that is our form of government, and there are very good reasons for it. And I could drop a lot of learned sites to James Madison and the Federalist Papers at this point, But the fact of the matter is that what is at stake in the debate about Trump's actions and further the the rallying of the Republican Party around Trump's actions, particularly after the 2020 election, is the fate of constitutional republicanism in the United States, the fate of the rule of law in the United States. And the rule of law, even if enacted by majorities, doesn't always make majorities happy. But that is our system. And it's a darn good thing that we have this system. And what populism represents is an organized assault against institutions that preserve individual and collective liberty. And I am, Ross surely understands this distinction but he is deliberately adopting populist language in order to exonerate anti-constitutional populist action against the rule of law and against our institutions. These are times that call for moral clarity, not moral equivalence. And yes, this column did make me think. It made me think worse of Ross Douthat for writing it. Okay, Bill Crystal, it's a um, familiar uh, conservative critique of the expansion of the bureaucratic state, that it is inefficient, that it contains you know all kinds of 
discouragements to industry and that it can be in many instances unjust when people are having difficulty starting a business or, you know, selling property or whatever it is. I mean, or, you know, having water on their property declared uh, waters of the United States and then they can't use it. All of those things are traditional conservative complaints about the bureaucratic state. But they are complaints. They are things where you try to, you know, you try to reform them. You try to say, you know, we need to cut back on this. Whereas Dowlett seems to be citing these as the equivalents, these unelected mandarins, he calls them. They're the equivalents of what the uh, rioters were doing uh, on January 6th. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Phil and Pete, and I, I don't give him, Ross, as much of the benefit of the doubt, I guess, as Damon does, but Damon's a nicer, more generous person than I am. <laughs> I might just think it was sophistic and, you know, uh, almost intentionally so, or probably intentionally so. And, you know, he so much wants to be not just anti-Trump, God forbid, you know, mm-hmm. not just to say this is unacceptable, period. End of story. Right. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's so simple-minded. You know, we really need to, let's have a little discussion of the problems with democracy, as if no one ever thought of that. Let's have a little discussion <laughs> of hypocrisies on the left. And I, I find it all kind of offensive. If you want to write, I mean, God knows, if you want to write a piece on the problems with democracy in the 21st century, quote Ortega y Gasset, if you want to write, you know, something about how, you know, we're not as different from some of these authoritarian states in certain ways because you know, technology is running our lives, quote Heidegger. I don't know, there are a million deep things you could do. But don't half-appropriate pseudo-deep things as a way of excusing what happened. And if you want to be just pro-Trump, be pro-Trump. But I think the the attempt to sort of appropriate a kind of uh, intellectual critique of direct democracy, as Bill was saying, and, and problems with democracy on the left, people of intelligent people have seen problems with democracy, to then muddy the waters about what happened on January 6th. I, uh, yeah, I don't like that. All right. Let us turn to our final topic. All right, it is time for our highlight or low light of the week, or both, if you're so inclined. I'm going to start with Bill Galston this week. Boy, do I have a great one this week. Uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> my colleague, Jamie Kirchuk, oh. has, has written a brilliant column about his friend and protege, Saurabh Akhmari, in Tablet Magazine, and uh, it's generous and personal, but at the same time, a very sad account of what Jamie takes to be the decline of a once thoughtful person. Uh, And it also has Ahmari, who comes from Iran, I believe, uh, converted to Catholicism five or six years ago. And uh, I think Tablet Magazine is going to win the headline of the year award, <laughs> even though there's still 11 months to go. Here is the headline of the piece. And I quote, when the Pope hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Amari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was a good one. <laughs> you can't do better than that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. By the way, a, a friend of mine who um, was also a, a convert to Catholicism said that the priest who converted her told her that the view of the church was that converts should shut up for at least five years after their mm-hmm. conversions because they tend to be a little overexcited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Damon Linker. 
Well, uh, since Bill uh, stole my choice, which oh. uh, uh, well, that's fine. I, I knew that uh, this was a risk. <laughs> I, I thought I would choose this and then Mona, you would say, I stole yours. But um, <laughs> uh, because of that, what I will do is uh, follow up on my comments about poor Ross Douthat to point to uh, the best of the left-leaning critiques of his piece. This is by Eric Levitz, who's very much to my left, but is is consistently a really, really smart writer uh, and worth reading and engaging with. Uh, he writes for New York Magazine. He has a piece up uh, titled, No Democrats and Republicans Aren't Equally Anti-Democratic. And it's a, a very good, in-depth subjection <laughs> to sweet reason uh, of, of Ross's column uh, in a way that gives me some pause, as do, you know, Pete's and the two bills, all very good things having to say about the potential weaknesses of Ross's column, which I still think has value, but I won't go back to that. But if you're looking <laughs> for if you're looking for a left-leaning uh, critique of Ross, Eric Levitz's column in New York is a really good place to go. Excellent. Okay, Bill Crystal. I thought the highlight of the week was sports, since politics is kind of depressing, and Nadal's victory at the Australian Open. I don't follow tennis as much as I used to. I never, my wife, I used to follow it as a kid, and then I, I sort of haven't watched in recent years or decades. But it was a pretty amazing, you know, a, a guy who had been out with injuries, 35 years old, coming back, I think, to, down to zero. Uh, and it made me think also because of the football games in the last uh, two weekends, actually, that's incredible weekend a week ago with four fantastic games in the NFL and then one really terrific game, at least this past Sunday. So um, sports reminds one that, you know, I don't know. It sort of cheers you up, doesn't it? I mean, the sports, you know, it's not everything is going downhill uh, in the way that one thinks sometimes when one looks at our politics. Yeah, I, that's a great, great point. I actually once um, commented on Twitter that I love Sunday Twitter <laughs> because Monday through Saturday, Twitter is a cesspool of vitriol and mutual accusations and recriminations. And then on Sunday, suddenly it's, oh, can you believe that catch? You know, <laughs> and everybody's watching games and, and they seem to know what games they, everybody else is watching. And I'm completely clueless, but it's nice, you know, and people on different sides of the aisle, you know, are, are trading info about their favorite team. So it, it's a really nice respite. Okay, Pete Weiner. I uh, am following Bill Crystal's lead. I'm staying with sports, um, but but another uh, another highlight, and that was the retirement of uh, of Tom Brady. And whether you were a New England and Patriots and Tampa Bay Bucks fan or not, or even a Brady fan uh, or not, it was an extraordinary career. I mean, to have been able to watch one of the truly great athletes, um, not just just in the NFL. He holds every meaningful passing record in the NFL. He had an MVP level. Uh, year this year when he was 44 years old. And um, Kendall Baker, who writes for, for Axios Sports, made a point, which is that essentially Brady has had three Hall of Fame careers in, in one, if you, if you uh, break up his career. So um, seven Super Bowl wins, 10 Super Bowl appearances, and as I said, every meaningful record in the books. And that's, uh, that's a pretty impressive achievement for a guy who was picked 199th uh, and was in the sixth round. Well, though it will hurt the feelings of my husband and son, who are both diehard Philadelphia Eagles fans, uh, I will say a tip of the hat to true excellence in uh, Brady. All right. I would like to cite our friend of the podcast, Mike Murphy, uh, who has podcasts called Hacks on Tap. Uh, 
highly recommended. But he had a suggestion this week that I thought was worthy of being repeated. Basically, he was he gives all kinds of unsolicited and mostly, alas, unheeded advice to the Biden administration about how they can be more popular and successful. But this week he said, look, uh, they've had a real problem with Kamala Harris. She's not been perceived as being very effective and, and her popularity is very low and uh, she could use a boost. So he said what she should do is she should be the one in the administration to respond to Donald Trump with, you know, based on her career as an attorney general, as a former prosecutor, she should talk about the rule of law and about the norms and traditions of the United States and about the sanctity of our constitution. And she should do that in a number of speeches and so forth. And guaranteed that when Trump is lambasted by her, he will respond. And then, you know, he will probably say things that he ought not to. And maybe even he'll say racist things. And that will chin up the base for the Democrats. And I thought, yeah, that was uh, that's smart advice. So uh, I'm echoing Mike Murphy and uh, suggesting that that would be a good role for Kamala Harris. All righty. Well, I want to thank Peter Weiner and Bill Crystal for sitting in with us this week. And I would like to thank all of the people who are commenting and rating our podcast. Much appreciated. All the emails this week we heard from people overseas. That's not completely unprecedented. I've heard from listeners as far away as Australia. This week I heard from someone in Netherlands much appreciated. So keep listening, tell your friends and spread the word. And we will return next week as every week. Bye.